0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter one, Luke chapter one. The Christmas season is now upon us, and we are delighted to be able to take a, a few moments today and next Sunday to together corporately remember the birth of our Savior It's a fun time of year. I know our kids are uh, already counting the days down. They've been going through the Advent calendar and counting down days until Christmas arrives. And this morning it's 11 days and they're waking up each day uh, counting down the days to Christmas. And certainly there's a sense of uh, excitement and and buzz about this time of year as we uh, celebrate and have some traditions and parties and food. And uh, certainly there's a joy to this time of year But for us as Christians, Christmas is obviously something so much more than that. It's obviously more than just the traditions and just the parties and just the food and just the gifts. Christmas is about Jesus Christ coming in the form of man to be our Savior, to die in our place, and to redeem us and provide for us salvation and forgiveness of sins. And to help us really appreciate the monumental reality of this time of year, I want to spend this Sunday and next Sunday in Luke chapter 1. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you may or may not remember that we're in a 10-year series on the birth of Christ. We have come through Matthew 1 and Matthew 2. We've looked at John chapter 1. We've looked at some standalone passages in 2 Corinthians 8 and 1 Timothy 3. We've been now in Luke chapter one for this is our fourth year, and so uh, just keep coming back every Christmas, and we'll get another portion of the Christmas story. If you remember last year, which I'm sure you don't, we uh, left off uh, last year in uh, the story of Mary's great hymn of praise in Luke chapter one, starting in verse forty-six. We looked at the Magnificat, which is Mary's song of exaltation upon learning that she would be the the mother of our Savior. Then last year we also saw the birth of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 57 through verse 66. This morning I want to focus on verses 67 through 80. It's the final section in Luke chapter 1. We're not going to make it all the way through these verses this morning. But this is known as the Benedictus. That's the first word in Latin of verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel benedictus esto dominus deus israelis it's the latin translation of that first verse and so this is known as the benedictus it is zechariah's statement of praise and exaltation learning about the birth of his son john the baptist I'd like to read these verses please follow along starting in verse 67 And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham our father. To grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you... The child will be called the prophet of the Most High and you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow And to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is Zechariah's great hymn of praise. It is really a prophecy from the lips of a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. You can see it in verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. His mother... John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, was also filled with the Holy Spirit, as was John the Baptist from his birth, filled with the Holy Spirit. And these are the Holy Spirit-inspired words of Zechariah, who was led by the Spirit of God and prophesies. And that's really what this is. This is a prophecy. And it's a prophecy because it does two things. It foretells and it Foretells. If you want to know what a prophecy is, that's what a prophecy is. It, it both foretells and it foretells. It foretells in the sense that it makes a proclamation of God's truth. And it foretells in that it predicts something to take place in the future. And you can see both of those elements of prophecy here in the song of Zacharias. In verses 68 to 75, he foretells of the greatness of God and praising God for providing salvation for his people. And then starting in verses 76 to 79, he foretells, he predicts the future about John the Baptist. So this is really a prophecy about the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus Christ. There's something very unique about this prophecy, about this hymn of praise, and it's this. It is that Zacharias understands the Old Testament implications of what was taking place at that moment. Zacharias gets it. Which makes sense to us because he was a priest... And as a priest, he would have spent most of his time studying the Old Testament. And you can see the fact as we read through this, that he clearly understands what God prophesied in the Old Testament and how all the Old Testament covenants come together in the giving of John the Baptist and the giving of the Messiah. He took the Old Testament to heart. He understands it. He understands the implications of it. He understands that this is the coming of the forerunner of the Messiah and the Messiah itself, himself. This is the dawn of redemption. And Zacharias understands all that the Old Testament has been speaking about this. And this is the great high point of redemption. And I want you to understand from a Jewish perspective... What was taking place at this moment in Zechariah's heart and his mind? I want you to understand the glories that Zechariah is about to experience. I want you to sense from his perspective what he's feeling, what he's knowing, what he's thinking about. I want to take you back, as it were, 2,000 years. I want you to step into Zechariah's shoes. And I want you to, to sense what a typical Jew would have understood and had hoped for in that occasion. I want you to appreciate all that is contained in this prophecy about the coming of the forerunner of the Messiah and Christ himself. And in order to do that, here's the warning. We have to go back to the Old Testament. And we have to dive into some prophecies and we have to dive into some covenants. So here's what I need from you this morning. You need to put your Old Testament caps on this morning, all right? You need to put your Old Testament thinking caps on. You need to be stretched a little bit in your understanding of prophecy and covenants. And here's what we're going to do. This morning, we are going to look at the implications of the Davidic covenant upon these events. And then next week, when you come back, and you all will come back, you are going to hear about the implications of the Abrahamic covenant And the new covenant. Because those three covenants are referred to in this passage of scripture. If you look in verses 68 to 71, there's a reference to David. That's the Davidic covenant. If you look in verses 72 to 74, there's a reference to Abraham. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And if you look in verse 67, there's a reference to the knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. That's a reference to the new covenant. Alright? So here's where we're going. We're going to walk through this morning the implications of the Davidic covenant upon the arrival of the forerunner of the Messiah and the Messiah himself. Alright, you with me? Let me set the stage. In order to first understand what Zacharias would have been feeling at this moment, you need to understand that at this point, there have been 400 silent years. 400 years in which no one has heard from a prophet. The last prophecy was Malachi in the last book of the Old Testament around 420 or 430 B.C. That was the last time any prophet has spoken on behalf of God. 420 years of silence. The last time an angel has spoken was the time of Zechariah, 500 years before this. The last time a miracle occurred was Daniel in the lion's den, 550, 560 years before this. So there's been 4 to 500 years of complete silence from heaven. No prophecy, no angel, no miracle. Think about that. That's 15 or 1600 in our day. That's a long time without hearing from God, and suddenly the silence has been broken and God has spoken for the first time in 4 to 500 years. An angel appears to Zechariah and informs him that his, he and his wife would give birth to a son, John the Baptist. An angel appears to Mary and informs her that she would conceive a child as a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit who will be the Son of the Most High. This is staggering. God has spoken. A miracle has taken place. Heaven has been opened up and the silence has been broken. A Messiah would be born and so would his forerunner. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke weaves together these two miraculous conception miracles. The conception of John the Baptist, the conception of Jesus Christ, the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus Christ, all woven together in this incredible first chapter of Luke. Now let me set the stage just again for you to remind yourself as to what is taking place with Zechariah and Elizabeth. You'll remember that Zechariah was a priest. That he and his wife Elizabeth were both from the priestly line. They were from the Aaronic priesthood and so they would trace their lineage back to that great high priest Aaron. And so Zechariah was one of these priests that would function as a, a local priest for the people in Israel. There were thousands of priests, 20,000, 25,000 priests in this time in the country of Israel. And most of these priests would function their priestly duties out in the villages, out in the towns, out in the local hillside, where people wouldn't have to travel all the way to Jerusalem. And that's where Zacharias was living, out in the village, out in the hill country, performing his priestly duties on a regular basis. But two times, or two weeks out of the year, they would travel to Jerusalem. Each division of a priesthood would arrive in Jerusalem for two weeks To fulfill their priestly duties within the temple in Jerusalem. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. We know that Zechariah and Elizabeth have no child. They're barren. And in that day, that was a stigma. If you were a barren person, couple... There was a stigma associated with you that perhaps you were under God's judgment for some sin in your life. That there was some displeasure that God had with you because you couldn't have a child. It was humiliating. It was embarrassing. And Zechariah and Elizabeth have lived with this for 70, perhaps 80 years. There's no child between the two of them. Great sadness had certainly overcome their hearts. The chance of having a child at this stage in life was really none. And you remember what happened. Zacharias traveled to Jerusalem with his order of the priests to fulfill their priestly service within the temple in Jerusalem. And while he was there, he was selected to be one of the priests who would go into the temple to perform priestly duties. Not every priest got the opportunity to do that, but he did. This would have been the, the highlight of his life, once in a lifetime opportunity. He goes in and Gabriel meets him and begins speaking to him. That alone would have been shocking because it's been 500 years since that's happened. Not only that, the angel tells Zacharias that he and his wife, Elizabeth, would have a son. That's even more shocking because they're almost 80. And not only that, This angel tells Zechariah that his son would be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who would come and prepare the way for Jesus Christ himself. Tremendous, tremendous privilege given to Zechariah and Elizabeth, that their son would be the forerunner of the Messiah. Now you remember the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, stated that there would be one who would come to be the forerunner of Christ, the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. Malachi chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. The last book of the Old Testament prophesies that there would be one who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. In that day, there would be people who would go before kings. They would send messengers ahead of time to make the path ready for a king. They would clear obstacles and make the path as smooth as possible for the king to arrive. And that's what John the Baptist would do in a spiritual sense. So the one who would fulfill this prophecy in Malachi was none other than John the Baptist. The last chapter of Malachi, verses 5 and 6, say this, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah... The prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord And he will restore the hearts of their fathers to their children And the hearts of the children to their fathers So that I will not come and smite the land with a curse John the Baptist was a new Elijah And he would come and prepare the way for people's hearts To be turned back to the Lord in preparation for the coming of Messiah Zechariah couldn't believe it Could you blame him? He's heard from an angel for the first time in 500 years He's been told he would have a son in his old age And his son would be the forerunner to christ You can't blame him for struggling a little bit And so he asks a question to the angel and he says uh 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 Is this really going to happen? For a moment he wavered in his belief And so God says, yeah, it's going to happen. In fact, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign is you won't be able to speak for nine months. Fast forward nine months. The day for the birth of John the Baptist has come. Luke records it for us in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 and 58. It says, now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she brought forth the son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And they asked her, what are you going to name him, assuming that she's going to say John? And she says, or his name would be Zacharias after his father. She says, no, his name will be John. And they come to Zacharias, who's still unable to speak at this moment. And they say, but what are you going to call him? You're going to call him Zacharias, right? And he writes on his tablet, no, his name is going to be called John. And I love what happens next. Verse 64. And at once, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he began to speak in praise to God. After nine months of not being able to say anything, he had a lot to say. For nine months, he's been thinking about this. For nine months, he's been regretting his unbelief. For nine months, he's been reminded every day of the fact that he didn't believe God when he first told him about this prophecy. For nine months, he was forced to deal with the fact that he questioned God and he wasn't going to mess it up this time. What comes out of his mouth? Praise, adoration, exaltation. And the words in verses 68 to 79 contain for us most likely the words that were coming out of his mouth as his lips are loosed and he begins to speak in praise and honor and glory to God. And what we see from this is that Zacharias understood the Old Testament. For nine months, he's been able to think about the prophecies. For nine months, he's been able to think about the covenants. For nine months, he's been able to think about all that was promised in the Old Testament. And what spills out of his heart is this great hymn of praise. So this morning, I want to take you back into the Old Testament to help you see what was promised to Israel in the covenants. And then to see how they as a Jewish people would have been looking forward to his arrival. Look at me first at verse 68. It says, blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Zechariah praises God for the fact that he has visited them and accomplished redemption for his people. He speaks in past tense as if it's already taken place and it hasn't. But it's so certain John the Baptist has been born and he knows that Messiah would be following just a few months later because Mary has lived with them for three months. And he knows that she's just three months behind in her pregnancy. So he begins to bless God for visiting them and accomplishing redemption for his people. He knows that it's the Davidic covenant that would bring about the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant covenant. Which would all usher in the redemption of the new covenant. I think there's a slide up there for you to kind of see this. Perhaps this will help you understand where Zechariah was coming from at this moment. Zechariah knew that the Old Testament promises many things to the nation of Israel. And you can see on the left hand side of that slide those promises made. There was an Abrahamic covenant. There was a Davidic covenant and there was a new covenant. I've highlighted those in red. You can see those. Those are the primary covenants which promised God's blessing upon the nation of Israel. And you can see that all three of those covenants, if you travel to the right, find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Now, at this point, Zechariah doesn't have any clue, probably, of the death of Christ or the cross. But all he knows is that Messiah would be the one who would usher in the blessings of the Abrahamic Covenant, the blessings of the Davidic Covenant, and the blessings of the New Covenant. And if you travel all three lines to the right, to the very bottom right, you can see where it results. It results in a kingdom. A kingdom ruled over by Jesus Christ as the rightful ruler and fulfillment of the Abrahamic, Davidic, and new covenant. When those promises are fulfilled. So I hope that gives you a little better picture as to what Zacharias is feeling at this moment. He is feeling the weight of these covenants. He's feeling the weight of these promises. He's feeling the weight of these prophecies. And all three of those major covenants find their fulfillment in Christ and usher in A kingdom. A dynasty, a reign. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. This song by Zechariah, though it is about his son, it is primarily about the Messiah. And so, as I said, I want to show you this morning the implications of the Davidic covenant upon what Zechariah is feeling at this moment. So, I want to show you number one praise for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Then next week, we'll look at the praise that comes from his heart for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and then praise for the fulfillment of the new covenant. Now, I understand this is not your typical Christmas sermon. All right, I get that. But I want you to stay with it because I think if you get this, it will help you especially appreciate the spirit of Christmas. Because it has past implications for us, and it will have future implications for us as well. So let's look at this first. Praise for fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Look with me first in verse 69. It says that he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. I want you to notice what Zechariah is praising God for. He is praising him for the fact that God has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, what is that? The horn is a symbol of power. It's a common Old Testament expression to indicate power. And if you think about animals that have horns, that's where their power is located. It's symbolic of the power of an animal. And such is the case here that Zechariah is praising God for the power of salvation, for the strength of redemption. So he has raised up, as Zechariah says, for us this horn of salvation. Now, who is this? It's not John the Baptist. It's not John the Baptist because he adds the next phrase, verse 69, in the house of David, his servant. That's not referring to John the Baptist because John the Baptist comes from the Aaronic descendants. He's in the priestly line. He's not from the Davidic line. So there's no way this can be referring to John the Baptist. It can only refer to the Messiah. That's what makes this coming so magnificent. This is a promise of the son of David, of of Christ himself, the Messiah, the one who would sit on David's throne and rule as David ruled. And to every Jew, this was their great hope. Remember I said, I want to take you back to appreciate what any Jew would be feeling at this moment. If you're a Jew, 2,000 years ago, your great hope is in the fact that there will be another David. The rightful son of David. the, The true son of David. Because to the Jews, David was king of kings. He was the epitome of any Jewish king. It wasn't Saul. And it certainly wasn't Solomon. And it wasn't any of the kings who followed Solomon in the divided kingdom. And so none of them, no one was like David. This is the apex of the Israelite kingdom was under David. This is when they enjoyed the most peace. It's when they enjoyed the greatest part of their land and the greatest boundaries to their nation as a, as a kingdom. So if you're a Jew 2,000 years ago, you are looking for the house of David to be restored to the kingship and to be restored to the kingdom. That's your great hope. In fact, Mary says the same thing. Look back in chapter 1 of Luke to verse 30. When Mary hears that she would be the mother of the Messiah, Luke chapter one, verse 30, look what it says. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall give him the name Jesus and he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. Now listen to this. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Do you see it? The great hope for here, for Mary and for Zechariah is the same, that there would be one who is given the throne of his father David and that he would rule and reign eternally over the house of Jacob in a kingdom that will have no end. If you're a Jew 2,000 years ago, you are looking for the great son of David to come and be the Messiah. Now, Let me take you back to the original Davidic covenant. Hold your finger here in Luke chapter 1. I want you to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember I told you we are going Old Testament. So hold your finger. Go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because this is where the original Davidic covenant takes place, and I want you to feel the weight of this covenant. I want you to sense this, because every Jew would have read this, and from the time that this this covenant is instituted to the arrival of the Messiah, everyone would be looking forward to the completion, the fulfillment of this covenant. Let me read it to you. Second Samuel, chapter seven, verse one. It says, Now it came about that the king lived in his house. And the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I, will do, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within the tent curtains. David says, um, Nathan, I need some advice. I built this great house for myself, and I live in this beautiful palace, and it's filled with all kinds of cedar, and it looks beautiful, but... Um, that Ark of the Covenant, that's still in the tabernacle. And this is about 400 years after the tabernacle was built, and this thing's tattered, and it's, it's kind of dilapidated. And David says, you know, Nathan, I think I'd like to build for God a temple, a place where we can house the Ark of the Covenant in a place what would honor the Ark. And Nathan, in verse 3, says, yeah, good idea. So Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Nathan says, hey, um, David, I think that's a great idea. Why don't you go ahead and do that? The problem was Nathan didn't check with God. Verse 4. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one who shall build a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? God says to Nathan, Oh, wait a minute, Nathan, slow down. I don't have a problem living in a tabernacle. I'm not asking for anyone to build me a temple. Someone will do it. But tell David he's not the one. David's not going to be the one to build me this temple. Verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. God turns the tables on David. David says that hey, God, I want to make a, a temple for you, a house to house the, the Ark of the Covenant, and God says through Nathan, uh, no, not gonna happen. But I'm gonna build you a house. Not a physical house, a kingdom. A sphere of rule marked by peace. Look what he says here. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them. That they may live in their own place. And not be disturbed again. Nor will any wicked afflict them anymore. This is what the Jewish nation was looking forward to. A time when God would raise them up to be a nation again under David. Their enemies put aside. This is what God promises to David. But you won't build a temple for me. I'm going to build a house for you. Verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men, but my loving kindness shall not depart from them as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Who's he referring to here? So Solomon. There would be one who would come and build a house, a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. And it wouldn't be David, but it would be a descendant after him, specifically Solomon. And that's exactly what Solomon did. He built the temple, the great Solomonic temple, the beautiful place that was erected under Solomon's rule. Solomon built that temple that David wanted to build. The problem was... Solomon forsook God. Solomon rejected God. Solomon was led away into idolatrous worship. Solomon lost sight of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely. He burned incense. He sacrificed to the idols. Solomon did not fulfill his part of the covenant. But that doesn't abrogate the covenant. The covenant is still in place. Solomon, though, brought God's disobedience... For his own disobedience, he brought God's judgment upon himself. In the year 722, the Assyrians came and took the northern tribes captive into exile. In 605 and 597 and 586 BC, the Babylonians came and took the southern tribe captive off into exile. So in verse 13 of Second Samuel 7, when it says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, that part can't refer to Solomon. And it can't refer to all the descendants who would not follow the ways of the Lord. So you have to understand, listen, there is a covenant that God makes with David. It's an unconditional covenant. A promise that he makes to David. It says, I'm going to build you a kingdom. The people under him, even if they disobeyed, would not abrogate that covenant because it's unconditional. And so when it refers to the fact that God will raise up his throne of his kingdom forever, it must mean someone other than Solomon or someone other than the Davidic line who did not obey God. There must be a further fulfillment of the Davidic covenant not fulfilled in Solomon or his descendants. Do you understand that? That's the Messiah. That's Christ. He would be the one who would establish this throne of David's kingdom forever. In fact, you can see it in verse 16. Now, if you're an underlighter, highlighter, star, this is one of those verses. You need to do that, okay? So do that now. Get your highlighter out. Because this is the Davidic covenant. Verse 16. And your house... And your kingdom shall endure before me forever. And your throne shall be established forever. When would that take place? It doesn't take place under Solomon. It doesn't play, take place under the, the kings of the divided nation of Israel after Solomon. It certainly doesn't take place during the exile. It doesn't take place when they come back from exile under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and they build another temple it certainly doesn't take place then And it certainly doesn't take place in those 400 silent years between the old testament and the new testament That kingdom is not established forever in those years, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled And you fast forward to the time of zecharias. They're still looking for someone who will fulfill the davidic covenants Who is that? It's the messiah It's Christ. He would be the one who would establish an eternal kingdom. He would be the one who would take the throne of the father David. He would be the one who would reign forever and ever in a kingdom which is peaceful and righteous. And it's safe and it's protected. In a place where they're protected from their enemies. In a land which the great king will rule over the entire world. That was the great Jewish hope. from the time of David onward, every Jew was looking forward to it. Knowing that Solomon didn't fulfill it and none of his line fulfilled it either. They were all looking for the one who would finally come and establish the Davidic throne in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And there's hundreds of passages after 2 Samuel 7 that talk about this coming kingdom. Let me give you a sample. I'm not going to give you all hundred and however many there are. Isaiah 9 Verses 6 and 7, we just read it this morning. Favorite Christmas passage. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the what? The government. That's a kingdom. That's a reign. That's a rulership. That's a throne. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace of peace, the one who would come and establish peace in the nation of Israel and around the world, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Do you understand that now in light of the Davidic covenant? That's not just a nice verse to read at Christmas time. That is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant when God promised that there would be one who comes after David who will establish the throne and the kingdom forever. And Isaiah looks ahead to that same time and said there will be one who sits on the throne of David and exercises authority over his kingdom and rules with with justice and righteousness. How about a couple chapters later? Isaiah 11 verses 1 to 5. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who's that? It's David. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. That speaks of the rightful reign of one who would bring into the kingdom righteousness and justice. How about Ezekiel 34, verses 23 to 29? Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will be their shepherd. And I will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing. They will no longer be prey to the nations, but they will live securely and no one will make them afraid and they will not endure insults of the nations anymore. It's a reference to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. How about Ezekiel 37, verses 24 and 25? My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them, and they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. You understand what this? Second Samuel, the covenant is made, Isaiah, the covenant, is still looking forward. In Ezekiel, they're still looking forward to the covenant. How about Amos? Verse chapter 9, verse 11 to 15. And that day I'll raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. And I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. And I will plant them on their land. And they will not again be rooted from their land which I have given them, says the Lord. Amos sees it. This was the great hope of the Jewish people. They wanted to see the fulfillment of the Davidic Covenant and they know it wasn't taking place. They haven't seen it yet in human history. What's this kingdom going to be like? Think about this. Don't, don't write this down. I just want you to listen. This kingdom that the son of David will rule over, do you want to know what it's going to be like? Let me just list for you. And There's, there's verses that go with every one of these. We don't have time to go through them, but just listen. Regarding the government of this kingdom, Christ will be king over Israel. Christ will be king over Israel. He will sit on David's throne. And by the way, he's not on the throne right now. You understand that? There are people today who want you to believe that where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father, that he's on David's throne. He's not on David's throne right now. He is on the throne of God at the right hand of God that's different than the Davidic throne. That's a heavenly throne. David's throne is an earthly throne. They're not the same thrones. Christ one day will return as king over Israel. He will sit on David's throne. And when that happens, Israel and Judah will be united under the kingship of Christ. They were once divided. Now Christ is going to bring them back to be one nation under the, the kingship of his rule. Jerusalem will be the center of the kingdom. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world when Christ reigns. And when that happens, he will also be king over all the Gentiles. These are some of the promises related to the governmental part of the Davidic kingdom. How about some of the spiritual characteristics of this kingdom? Number one, Messiah will be present. He will be ruling and reigning upon the earth he will, his reign will be characterized by righteousness and perfect peace. There will be no more wars. Micah 4 verse 3 says, They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation. And they will never again train for war. Why will they pound their, plow, their, their swords into plowshares? Because the king will remove war. It's a characteristic of the Davidic kingdom. There will be a universal worship of Messiah centered in the new temple a temple in Jerusalem. There will be a new temple in Jerusalem. And they will worship there and they will offer sacrifices there. Read about it in Ezekiel 40 to 48. But what will be taking place is universal worship of the Messiah centered in Jerusalem. And the glory of God will reside in that temple. That's part of the Davidic kingdom. How about some physical characteristics? When the king rules and reigns upon the earth, the curse will be reversed so that people will be healthy. All your diet plans will go out the door. All your vitamins and whatever else, you don't need those anymore. And if you die when you're a hundred, you'll have died in your youth. Not only that, there will be peace among animals and people. Isaiah 11 says, The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. My wife says she can't wait for the tiger because she's going to lead the tiger around. That's going to happen. Because in the Davidic kingdom, animals will return to their pre fall nature and they will eat plants, not meat. It's a promise. Isaiah chapter 11. So you have these governmental characteristics of this Davidic kingdom. You have these spiritual characteristics of this Davidic kingdom. And you have these physical characteristics of this, this kingdom. All brought into existence through the Messiah. And now put yourself in Zechariah's shoes. And wouldn't you be Ecstatic. Wouldn't you be excited? Wouldn't you be anticipating the arrival of the Messiah? The one who would do what Solomon couldn't do and the kings of Israel couldn't do and the kings of Judah couldn't do and what Zerubbabel and Ezra couldn't do? Now go back to Luke chapter 1. That as the backdrop. I want you to read Luke chapter 1 verses 69 to 71 again. Verse 69 of Luke 1 And he raised up for us a horn of salvation in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers. Do you get the mindset now of Zacharias? There's coming a king who will fulfill the Davidic covenant, who will then remove from us our enemies and the hand of all who hate us, and he will show us mercy. Zechariah gets it. He gets it. He understands what was prophesied in the Old Testament. He understood what was at stake in the Davidic covenant. And he is excited. He is, he is seeing this as the greatest moment of redemptive history. The apex of, of everything. The highlight of everything the Old Testament has anticipated. And you can sense his hope. You can sense his expectation. You can sense his anticipation. Because it's all coming to fruition now. In the son of David. The true son of David. Fortunately, you knew how the rest of the story played out. Christ came offering that kingdom. The rest of this that we're going to talk about for just a moment, Zechariah's had no idea about. Christ came offering the kingdom. But he came offering first the spiritual kingdom that would usher in the physical kingdom. And that was the problem. The Jews didn't want the physical, the spiritual kingdom. They wanted the physical kingdom. And so when Christ comes saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that didn't sit well with the Jewish people because they wanted the physical kingdom. And Christ would have ushered in the physical kingdom had they received the spiritual kingdom that He was ready to offer. He would have occupied that throne of David. He would have ushered in the Davidic kingdom. He would have ushered in everything that we just talked about. The peace, the government, the righteousness, the physical characteristics, the spiritual characteristics. All of that would have been ushered in at the moment Christ came had they received Him as their Messiah. So in a sense, the Jews were right to expect the overflow of Rome. They were right to expect that there would be a king who would come and defeat their enemies. They were right to expect that. The problem was, that's all they wanted. And they didn't want to hear about the spiritual transformation that needed to take place in their hearts. They killed their Messiah. They rejected Him. They put Him to death, even as He stood there amongst them, Read about it in Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. Christ was questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. And he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus says, I'm here. I will usher in the kingdom. The kingdom is standing right in the middle of you, Jewish people but they wouldn't have it. They put him to death. And because of that, the Davidic kingdom was put on hold. And it's still on hold. And we are between the two comings of Christ. And Zacharias could have never anticipated that. He never could have anticipated that the kingdom offered in the Davidic covenant would be now delayed for 2,000 years. He could have never expected that. Even after Christ's death and his resurrection, and he's standing there in his glorified body, what do the disciples say in Acts chapter 1, verse 6? It says, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, 'Uh, Lord, now is it time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? See, even after his death, even after his resurrection, the disciples don't fully understand it. And so they're asking, is the kingdom coming now? But it wouldn't. And we've been waiting for the kingdom for 2,000 years. Zecharias wouldn't have known any of that. All he knew at this point in Luke chapter 1 is that the forerunner of the Messiah had come, his son And that the Messiah who would usher in all of those promises of the Davidic covenant was three months away. And you can see why he couldn't contain himself. And you can see why the exuberance and the joy and the exaltation and the anticipation and the expectation just spilled out of his heart. As he anticipates the Messiah who would come and take David's throne, rule over Israel and the world and bring in a kingdom of peace. You've got to understand that If you're going to appreciate Christmas Because that's what Christmas is about It's about the coming of the king of David The one who would bring peace and prosperity to Israel To the world Who would rule the world And the increase of his government would have no end They all got it Do we? Do we get it? Just so you know, here's how the rest of the story ends. That kingdom is still coming. And Jesus Christ will return one day. And when he does, he will usher in the kingdom that he came to usher in the first time. And you could read about it in Revelation chapter 19 when it says that Christ returns as what? As King of kings and Lord of lords. He's not coming back as a lamb, he's coming as a lion. And he will take his throne, he will take his kingdom, he will establish it, he will rule with power, he will rule with might, he will usher in peace, he will usher in righteousness. And all the promises of the Davidic covenant that were not fulfilled after David will be fulfilled in the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, Zechariah says they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like a bitter weeping over a firstborn. That's speaking of Israel when they recognize that they put their Messiah to death the first time. And their hearts will be changed. And as a nation, they will repent And as a result of that, God will establish them as a kingdom once again. And they will be grafted back into God's plan. You can read about it in Romans chapter 11. He grafted them out for a certain season. He will graft them back in during that millennial kingdom when he literally rules and reigns upon the earth for 1,000 years. And we believe that to be literal. Revelation 20 says six times it will be for 1,000 years that Christ rules and reigns upon the earth and everything that was promised in the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled then. That's why we're premillennial. Because there will be a future kingdom ruled by Christ, centered in Jerusalem over the nation of Israel where he acts as king of the world and ushers in everything that was promised through David. And if you want to know where you'll be, if you're a Christian, you will be with him, ruling and reigning with him. Revelation 20, verse 6, you will be priests of God and of Christ, and you will reign with him for 1,000 years. Think about that. If, if it doesn't happen in our lifetime, you will return with Christ when He returns. And you will be in your glorified body. And you will be living under the, thing, under the throne and the kingship of the righteous ruler of Israel, Jesus Christ. And at the same time, there will be believers upon the earth who have come through the tribulation. Who've lived through the tribulation and been converted in the tribulation. And they will enter the millennial kingdom in their earthly bodies. And so living together for a thousand years, our glorified saints in their resurrected bodies, and earthly saints in their earthly bodies, all with Christ ruling and reigning over them as the righteous king, peace. That's what Christmas is about. Makes your Lego set for Christmas look pretty pale in comparison, doesn't it? By the way, we love Legos at our house. But you can't, you can't go through Christmas just kind of caught up in the food and the presents and the lights and the decorations and the candy canes and the parties and the tinsel and the reindeer and the traditions all the while knowing that this is what Christmas is about. And as church saints, we stand between the two comings. Looking back to his first coming when he came to usher in the kingdom, and it was rejected, looking ahead to his second coming, when, when he came to offer the first time, will be established as God's promises in the Davidic covenant are fulfilled. Father, thank you for these incredible realities. Tremendous to think about Christ as the son of David the true king of Israel the one who will come and rule and reign with all authority and all power Lord in a sense we thank you that he was rejected the first time because his rejection means our salvation we thank you that during these church age years you are bringing in Gentiles And that's us. And so we praise you for the horn of salvation that has been brought not just to the nation of Israel, but to the world. Their rejection means our salvation. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.